our praise, our praise to God this morning. As Easter approaches, we have a new song that we are excited to share with you, and it gives us the opportunity to reflect on who God is in Jesus' ultimate victory on the cross. So we want to invite you guys to join with us as we sing and as we worship our God. One of our favorite lines in that song is, He bore the cross, He beat the grave, and we love it because it is a great reminder of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. We want to continue remembering Jesus and his love for us by taking communion together right now. Before Jesus was crucified, he gave his disciples and us a physical way for us to reflect and remember the cross. Taking communion is important to God, and it's something that he set aside exclusively for his followers. So we will leave it up to you uh, to decide if you or your children, if you have any, uh, are ready to participate together with us this morning. In just a moment, uh, we're going to give you all some time to grab the bread and juice. And once you have them, you can head back to your seat, but don't take them just yet. Instead, we want to invite you to take a moment this morning to sit and reflect on Jesus' love, on his mercy, on his selflessness, and his sacrifice on the cross. Let's grab the bread and juice right now. It's, it's good for us to sit and be still and reflect and to remember. Let's look back together at the account of Jesus and his disciples the night before he died. This time, I'm going to read uh, from Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22, and it says this. And as they were eating... He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's grab the bread and take it together. Looking back again at verse 24, it says, And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's drink. God, we thank you for this tangible, physical act that we have in communion that, God, it not only connects us with the people around us, it's something that we get to do as a church body. It's unifying, and that is great and all, God, but we, we, we thank you. We're thankful that it connects us to you, that it puts things into perspective. It 
especially in this Easter season that reminds us how great the sacrifice was, that we couldn't do it on our own, that we needed you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. And we want to ask you guys to stand with us. We're going to sing just a little bit more of that last song. It has been amazing worshiping with you so far this morning. Adults, you can have a seat. Kids, it's been great being with you. You are dismissed to Kids Life. We will see you later in the morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Brett asked Curtis Huntley and I to do announcements this morning. Uh, I'd like to start just by introducing myself. My name is Jonathan Hartzell. Uh, my wife Jennifer and I have been going to LCC now for about 10 years. We have three kids. This is Curtis. Uh, he plays guitar in the band, also has three kids. You see me uh, playing drums occasionally as well. It's nice to be here with you this morning. Okay, uh, we're going to do the announcements here. So first, uh, Good Friday service on Friday, April 7th, starting at 7 p.m. Uh, Easter Sunday is the following Sunday, and we'll start at the normal time. Uh, Good Friday will not be live streamed, but Easter Sunday will be live streamed. Um, either way, we'd like to see everyone here for uh, Good Friday and for Easter Sunday. Okay, uh, next, Jonathan, what is your favorite meal of the day? Dinner. Second favorite? Breakfast? Third favorite? Lunch. Perfect. <laughs> Let's talk about that. So uh, we're having our first Sunday lunch next Sunday. Um, it's going to be sandwiches. There is a Sign Up Genius link on mylcc.info. We want to thank Danelle and Matt Piper for uh, the, the idea there. OK. And then lastly, uh, intro to serving today, following service right here in the auditorium, uh, probably five minutes after the service ends. And speaking of cell groups, uh, Curtis and I just started a cell group recently. Uh, we are meeting on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here in the building. Um, that's a convenient time for those of you who may be dropping off uh, middle or high school aged children, uh, as that's the same time that they're meeting. Uh, we're meeting back in the kind of the kids' life area in the green room that has the small stage for puppet shows. Um, I think it has an actual name, but I'm going to call it that for now. Um, and that's it. I'm just going to pray for um, Dan Nellis as he brings the word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray for Dan as he brings it to us. I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, and that uh, your Holy Spirit will be present and active as we hear. Amen. Amen. Morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? He brought his shoes up just in case. These ones weren't working out. Are these okay? Do these do? Tough crowd. <laughs> okay. All right, so my name is Dan Nellis. Uh, I'm a member of the teaching team here uh, at LCC. And so um, I am here because I'm teaching this morning, so I've been told. And um, we are finishing uh, up our study in the book of James. Uh, so the end of the letter that James wrote to the early church. And, uh, you know, reading this letter, just, you know, you get to thinking about letters, and maybe not, maybe this just makes for a good intro. Um, but, uh, you know, we have this world of instant communication, right? And so we have texting and emailing and, 
you know, video chatting and stuff. And so, you know, a, a good handwritten letter has sort of fallen out of, out of st uh, style. And um, I was reading um, an article, and this, this uh, journalist, this Paris-based uh, journalist named Catherine Field, she described uh, the creativity that's at the heart of a, of a handwritten letter. And she wrote it in a, in a book called the, uh, the Fading Art of Letter Writing. And she wrote that handwritten letters are a deliberate act of exposure. They're a form of vulnerability because handwriting opens a window on the soul in a way that cyber communication can never do. You savor their arrival and take care to place them in a box for safekeeping, hence the box. And these are not shoes. These are actually like correspondence between uh, Kristen and I, like all through college as we were kind of courting and dating and stuff like that. So we, we keep those things. We keep those letters. And none, no one in this room is ever going to see what's in this box. I can tell you that right now. So at the end of a letter, at the end of any good letter, you know, we try to pack all of the things into that letter that maybe we didn't get to say uh, at, at, in the letter or clearly enough or forcefully enough. We try to jam it into the end of the letter. It's, it's kind of where we throw in the kitchen sink, right? And that's what we have here in the book of James. Um, he's coming to the end of his letter. Um, he's writing to a displaced group of Jewish Christians, and he's covered a lot of ground. Um, he's talked about uh, how they should handle trials and temptations. He's talked about the effects of favoritism, like showing partiality on, on one another. Um, he talks about the power of our speech, the devastating nature of, of the tongue. Um, he talks about the dangerous allure of worldliness, um, longing for the things more and more of what the world has. He talked about how we think about the future and, and kind of considering what God has to say in our plans. But he still has a few more things to say um, and, uh, before he gets to the end of this letter. And so I'm not kidding. Like, he is going to throw the kitchen sink at us, and we are going to try to take it all in. So I'm just going to ask you to buckle up. We've got a small amount of time, a lot, a lot, a lot amount of content. So I'm going to kind of cut back on the pizzazz. You're not going to get, like, all the video clips that I usually do and the cultural, cute cultural references. We're just going to see what God has to say um, in his word here. So... Um, so we are in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, um, please. Right. So I had, a, I had a joke with somebody that I had to use the word pizzazz in my sermon, so I had to figure out where I, where I was going to fit it in. So just did it. All right, so we're going to start out by looking at James chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 7 and 8 and go from there. So James writes, and he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So just a reminder, I, I mentioned this before, but he's, he's writing, James is writing to a displaced group of Jewish believers, followers of, of Christ. They've I didn't bring the map, but, you know, they've, they've been forced out of their homes, and they're scattered abroad. And, um, and, and they've been suffering hardship, um, a lot of it in the form of economic oppression. And in the first six verses of James 5, um, he, James has just gotten done laying into um, those who have used their riches as a means of self-indulgent um, luxury at the expense of those who are less well-off. And he told them that their luxury is going to be short-lived. Now he turns his attention back to uh, his audience and to those who have suffered at the hands uh, of the rich oppressors. And I highlighted, I've highlighted some words. You'll see that 
periodically, but he highlights, I highlight the word be patient. And the word that is, is there in the Greek, it's, it's used to describe an attitude of self-restraint that doesn't try to get even for a wrong that has been done. And it, it usually represents um, like a long-suffering patience, a long-suffering uh, attitude of self-restraint towards people rather than things. So James is telling them, like, you've been through a lot, right? Life has not been fair. It's not been good to you. He says, be patient. He says, hang in there, right? Like, don't force the issue. Like, don't try to, don't try to force a time to get out of this, but just be patient. It's easy to say, hard to do, but it, it ties back because he's, he's basically saying, don't, don't let your reaction to this present trial short circuit what God is doing in you and through you because of this trial. I just take you back to the very beginning of this letter, James chapter 1, when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. He says, be patient because this is not the end, right? That, that there will be a maturing that Christ is going to do in you and through you, through this trial that you're going through. So just hold on, hang in there, right? But it still, it begs the question, like, how, how long? Like, how long, oh Lord, do I have to go through this trial? Like, certainly not forever, right? Like, sometimes we just, we want the work that Christ is doing in us to be done already so that we can just get out of this trial. And, and James doesn't give them, like, probably a, a clear answer, but he says, you know, it's going to, it'll end, eventually, it's going to end ultimately with the coming of the Lord. So he assures them that their struggle is not open-ended, right? Jesus will come back, right? And when he does, he's going to finish the work that he started. And part of that work is, is justice. It is rescue, right? He's on a rescue mission. Back in the book of Luke, when Jesus started his ministry, he went to the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and he sat down amongst all of the elders, and he opened up the scroll, and he started to read, and he said, he read out of Isaiah, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then closed the scroll and said, basically saying, I'm that person, to everybody's amazement, right? Jesus came on a rescue mission. Sometimes the hardest part in living, though, is in the waiting, right? Like, we know that there's an end, but sometimes it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait for relief. It's hard to wait for justice to come. And to be fair, I mean, the people that James wrote to, they all have died, right, without seeing the return of the Lord, right? They haven't experienced it yet. They know it now, but they never got to experience the coming of Jesus, for that relief. And so James gives them maybe a, a little bit more of a practical example when he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil. This was a, an agrarian culture, right? So th this is something they could latch on to. He says, be patient like a farmer. So if you've ever tried to grow something, if anyone's ever tried to grow something, if you have a garden or a field, you've tried to grow 
grass or you've tried to grow flowers or you've tried to grow fruits or vegetables, especially maybe from a seed, then you understand the concept of patience. The farmer has a role in the process, and I'm not going to pretend to understand everything, but there's a planting, there's a tending, feeding and, and weeding, but at the end of the day, the farmer can't control the coming of the rain or the shining of the sun. They can only wait. They wait, at the end of the day, they wait, and they have to wait patiently for the precious fruit of the soil to be ready for harvest. And so, too, James says that, that his readers and we must wait. We must endure for something that's going to happen, relief, growth, at the end of the day, in the middle of our trials. And then he continues and says, at the end, he says, you, like the farmer, I want you to be patient. And then he adds on, establish your hearts. He says, establish your hearts. So it's not just a passive sitting around and waiting patiently, but he, he inserts something in there that says, actively establish your hearts. Stand firm. Be strong. To draw on the farmer analogy, he's, it's like be firmly rooted, right? Have a strong foundation. Don't be, don't be swayed by what's going on around you, but have an established heart into the truth of what God is doing in you and through you. And again, for emphasis, he says that, you know, that the Lord is coming. The Lord's, at the very end, he says, for the, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Just to, just to remind them that, that Jesus is coming back, right? All right. Then he moves on into verse 9, James 5, 9, and he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So <laughs> it's interesting because he, he's talking then, he switches the emphasis from this one of patience and growth to sort of a warning to them. He says, don't grumble against one another. And the word there for grumble is um, usually, is, 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 it's not an outward vocal grumbling, but it's meant to denote like a sighing or a groaning, like an inner groaning, right? And it speaks to the, an inner distress more than an open complaint. And um, I got this out of a commentary. It says that what, what's forbidden is not the loud and bitter denunciation of others, but the unexpressed feelings of bitterness or the smothered resentment that may express itself as a groan. Just how, just how easy is it in our times of trial, um, of, of oppression, seeming oppression, to, to allow ourselves to fall into, into bitterness and envy and feelings of maybe entitlement, which ultimately leads to resentment, right? So hang with me here. It's, it's hard to feel powerless, right? If, if someone's oppressing you, someone maybe that's stronger than you, a boss or some whatever, that you feel like the, the man is, is oppressing you, it's hard to feel like you can do anything about it. But one thing we do have power over is how we relate to each other, right? And so if we can't affect that, we certainly can affect, have an effect on, on this, on our relationships with one another, right? And we live, though, unfortunately, we live in an increasingly polarized and tribal and a cynical world, a world that does have real and increasing inequality. And because of that, we look around in our world, and it's easy to fall into despair. We fall into despair over our lot in life, right? And we become resentful. We become resentful over, like, the unfair way we've been treated. And so the problem with that is that 
the world as we know it right now is sort of set up to encourage that type of a behavior, that type of a feeling of resentment and cynicism and anger. Do you feel it? You feel it in the world? I just, I give you social media. I give you what passes for cable news. I give you modern politics. Like, it is everywhere. You cannot go anywhere without being, this, without being encouraged to be angry or resentful against one another over something. And so, James understands this. It's, it's, it's very thoughtful that he would put this in the middle of this. He says, he's basically saying, beware of the toxic nature of resentment and the speed at which those small and petty feelings of envy, those, those feelings of envy that come as a result of comparison, like, why is it this person not suffering as much as I am? Why does this person have more than I do? How quickly that can turn into all-out hostility, right? And it's interesting because, you know, at the beginning, James is saying, you know, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, right? There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be rescue. But then he says that judgment is also coming to those who grumble. Judgment is coming to them if they can't get there, if they can't rein this in, right? James is saying that we should be patient, right? We need to be patient about our circumstance. We need to be patient towards the outsider who oppresses us and also towards those insiders who irritate us. Those who fail in this area will risk judgment should they fail to respond with patience and grace with one another. Okay, where am I? Sorry. All right. We are not going to have time to go through this, but, but James then continues. He talks about farmers, but then he also wants to give them, a Jewish audience, some examples that they can kind of cling to around this idea of patience and long-suffering and steadfastness. And he talks to them about the prophets, and he points them to Job. So as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that's where I'm going to have to leave this because we've got a lot more to cover. But I would encourage you, if you are ever interested in learning, doing like a case study in patience and endurance in, a, in trials, I would encourage you to look at the life of Jeremiah the prophet to see everything that he endured just for doing what God told him to do and to look at the life of Job for going through so much simply for following Jesus, for following God, you know, just doing what he was thought God wanted him to do, you know. We talk about the patience of Job. Job wasn't a patient guy. He wasn't. But he was a steadfast person. So I would encourage you to just take a look at their lives. But we do have to move on. Okay. So the next thing that James wants to talk about is found in James chapter 5, verse 12. And he says, but above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any, any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, so he's not talking about, like, vulgarity, right, when he talks about swearing. Although I think, I know I could probably use some talking to in this area sometimes. But he's talking about, like, promises. He's talking about oaths. He's talking about, you know, the, the, the words that we use when we want to make an affirmation. And here, James is quoting almost 
word for word from Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus said that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have swor sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by all of Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So at face value, you know, this, this feels kind of oddly placed, right? Like he's talking about patience and endurance, and then he talks about grumbling, and then he talks about oaths. And you're just like, okay, I get the kitchen sink thing, but like, couldn't this have been fit in somewhere earlier? Like this just feels a little anticlimactic. Of all the things that he could address at the end of a letter, he chooses to talk about the taking of oaths. And the, and the language here seems like oddly, like, earnest, right? Like he says, above all, right? So like, in light of everything that I've said, like, above all, my brother, you know, like, really? Like, above all oaths, you know? But actually, um, that's, that's just our English taking a Greek and sort of messing it up. The, the Greek actually gives an impression not about that it's the most important, but it, the, the Greek literally for where above all is, is, is before all things. So like first of all, or before all things. It's a little, it makes it a little less like this is the most important thing. But he's saying before you speak, before you do anything, like consider this. That's what he's saying. But still, like why, why oaths? Why, why are oaths so important to him? Well, two, two thoughts come to mind. One is that James has spent a great deal of time in his letter talking about the power of our speech and the power of words, right? Um, talking about uh, how important it is that our actions match our words, that our words have the power to create and to destroy, that we should take great care with how we articulate our plans for the future. Um, so in that respect, when he's talking about oaths, the, the words that come out of our mouths, that this would be very consistent with his overall message on, you know, just be careful with how you talk, right? Like, there are no words that should be, like, just thrown about casually, right? So this, this would be consistent with that. But also, in the present context, it seems that James might be attaching our speech just to our overall, like, foundation, our overall steadfastness. He says, he says to them, establish your hearts. And then right after that, he says, be firm and be consistent with your words. In other words, don't equivocate. Don't, don't use the na name of God as a means to provide cover for something you need to do, right? Just mean what you say. Do what you say. You don't have to bring God's name into this to try to, like, add some kind of holy emphasis to it. But instead, just be consistent with your words because they matter. You don't have to swear. You don't have to swear by something beyond yourself. Just, just mean it. And, and then it's interesting, again, at the end of this verse, he says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Right? Like, don't grumble or you'll be judged. Don't, you know, don't swear by God's name or you risk condemnation. Like, there's... There's real, like, risk here that he wants them to be aware of, like, that, 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 that our words matter. And I don't think it's a big leap to look at this Jewish audience and say, you know, that, that, that by using God's name casually, they, they could risk 
you know, falling into that, the Old Testament law that says do not use God's name in vain, right? Don't use God's name in vain. Exodus 27, you know, it's, it's, this is an, imp- it, it made it into God's top 10 list of rules for them, right? So there's an importance that's attached to this, that God's name is important. So, so just don't use it when you're making promises, right? All right. I know we're going fast. A lot of content here. Everyone doing okay? Too much? Overwhelming? Okay. All right. I, I trust you guys. You guys, I trust you guys that you can take all this. So James is winding down his letter now, right? Just got a few more verses to go. And he just has like a, a couple of more practical pieces of instruction for them. And it's interesting because it, it sort of does all tie together if you think about it. Because now he's going to talk about like one of the means, one of the ways that God has given us to patiently endure with established hearts the things that we're going through. And that is prayer, continual conversation with God in prayer. So in James 5, 13 to 15, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Amen. You know, there's a tendency that we have just to sort of reduce prayer down in our lives. I have a tendency to reduce prayer down in my life to a task to be completed, right? Just a box to be checked, right? Um, Like, I'm having a meal. Thank God for my meal, you know? Um, Someone needs something. I, I, I talk to God about it, you know? Pardon, pardon the analogy, but, you know, sometimes I, I can treat God sort of like a cosmic butler, you know, just, just, he's on call, he's available whenever I need him. But James kind of takes a different a, a, a approach here. He, he says, are things hard? Pray. Talk to God about it. Are things going well? Pray. Thank God for it. Are you feeling weak? Get others around and pray. Like, James is uh, sort of echoing what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, where, where Paul's ending his letter, and this is one of his kitchen sink items, and he says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's more to prayer than just, you know, shooting up requests and shooting up, you know, things to God, need, uh, need, our need for help. Um, some guys in my group, in our cell group, we've been going through a book together uh, by uh, an author, uh, Henry Nowen. It's called The Way of the Heart. And at the very end, he spends a few chapters talking about prayer. Um, and, and I'm just going to share a few things that came out of that study. But, but he, he talks about how we tend to think of prayer simply as an intellectual inter- exercise. So we tend to think of prayer as an activity of our mind in which we view prayer as simply like talking to God so like a one-sided affair in which like we're presenting God with our problems, with our questions, with our needs, with requests for forgiveness, for guidance. So that's one way we can use our minds. We think about God and, or, or talking with God. Another one is thinking about God. So not just talking with God, but thinking about God. So, so instead, we, we use prayer as a way to try to like solve the mystery of God. Where we just we use prayer to kind of view God as as a subject to be analyzed or scrutinized, right? 
And both of these ways that we pray generally lead to frustration and dissatisfaction. Because, you know, if you're just viewing prayer as talking to God, you're going to get frustrated and disappointed because you're probably not hearing anything from God, right? So a lack of response, unanswered prayers, right? But it can also be, like, if you're doing the thinking about God thing, then it could be, like, tiring. It could be mentally demanding. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise, though, that will bear very little fruit. Now, this isn't to say that our minds should not be engaged in prayer when we pray, but Nowen says that the crisis of our prayer life is that our mind may be filled with ideas of God while our hearts are far from him, right? So he, he wants to connect our hearts and our minds together when we're praying. And so he, he points us to a, a more holistic view of prayer. Um, I don't think it's a really radical one, but he defines prayer as standing in the presence of God with the mind in the heart. Now, I'm going to, we're not going to get into great detail in this, but, you know, the, our hearts, that's the source of who we are, that's our will, that they, they act in partnership with our minds, right? And we enter into the very presence of God, and we engage and commune with God's heart. It is as much listening as it is talking to God, right? So much more we could talk about prayer, but, but James is, he's basically encouraging them to a continuous posture of, of prayer, right? He, he wants them to know that, that they have a God who longs to engage with them if they will just engage with him. Now, I don't want to get away from this passage without talking a little bit about what's right in the middle there, um, where he talks about healing. So verses 14 and 15, when he talks about, are any of you sick? Call the elders in the church, and they'll pray over them and anoint them with oil and, and, and whatnot. And so I want to just, we're just going to talk a little bit about that. The, the idea of anointing with oil, um, there's a thought that uh, there's probably, there's a twofold purpose there back in, in, in that time, um, in that the oil could actually be medicinal, like it could literally be like an olive oil type of a thing. Um, it would be consistent with the use of the word, the Greek word for oil in this space, um, where they could actually use like oils oil to, as, a, as a means of healing people. Um, I think that's probably coming back, right? Using oils. Um, now, but we don't know whether it, it was that or it could have just been more like symbolic, right? It was, um, you know, just that the symbol of, of using oil in that time to sort of say, this person, we're setting them apart uh, for God's care, right? But what we do know is that James is, he is tying prayer to healing here and healing to the forgiveness of sin. You know, when he says that the, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. And, and honestly, this, is, this can be sort of tough sledding because you know, um, many, many have tried to use this passage as a way to, that, to say that like a, a person's lack of healing can be because of some unresolved sin in their life or because of a lack of faith in their prayers. I don't know if anyone comes from that as a background or if they experience that. But um, that's not to say, though, that, that, that sometimes our, our physical ailments might not be tied to some sin in our life. When we look at, at, just look at the life of David in Psalm 32, like he talks about how he wasted away because of his unconfessed sin. But this passage is, is really not designed to help us build a theology that says that, that, that we, we're not, we don't get healed because of a lack of faith or because of un, some unconfessed sin in our lives. I mean, I would just point you to Paul, Paul who had a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to take it away from him. 
I would point you to Jesus in John chapter 9, who said that the person that was born blind, it wasn't because of some sin in their life, but it was because of that God's glory might be revealed in them. Instead, I think this passage just makes the case that, that prayer matters. Prayer has great power. And prayer can be used by God to enact healing. The prayer of faith is not what heals us. It is God who heals us. All healing, in fact, comes from God. And no matter what, no matter what happens, we, we entrust God with our healing. We come to him through faith in prayer. And we invite God into our healing. But ultimately, it is up to God whether the healing is going to happen. God wants to heal us. God's a healer. He calls us to pray. So James continues in verse 16. He says, therefore, so he's connecting this now. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. And he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. So since confession of sin and the prayer of faith, they are instrumental in healing. Christians should confess their sins to each other and pray for one another. This goes beyond just calling the elders. This is saying that, that prayer and confession of sin is something that should happen within our body, within our body life, within our cell groups, within our families, within our relationships. And if, that's, if sin has caused some sort of sickness, then God will, um, can bring healing through that. So I feel, I'm sorry, I gotta, I'm going to have to keep going here. But similar to before, when he brought up the prophets and then he brought up Job, James now brings in Elijah as an example of prayer. And we're not going to have, honestly, we, we just simply will not have time to go through the life of Elijah. But I will just say that the one thing that I would point out there is that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature, with, he was a man with a nature just like ours. And God used his prayers to do amazing things. And I would just encourage you to go look up the story in 1 Kings 17 and 18 when a drought happened as a result of Elijah's prayers and then rain coming as a result of Elijah's prayers. That's power, right? And we tend to think that that kind of power is not available to us today because we say, well, Elijah was Elijah, right? Jeremiah was Jeremiah. Job was Job, right? But I'm just me, right? But Elijah was a man with a nature just like us. And James is assuring us that, that these kinds of answers to prayer, even, even healing, are available to us. They're within the reach of any believer today. All right, we're going to wind up here. Wind up, wind down. We're winding. All right, so these are James's final words. Final two verses in the book of James, okay? So his final words are especially appropriate in this space of an action-oriented letter. And he says, my brothers and sisters, if any one of you um, uh, wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with this quote, not all who wander are lost. Does anyone know who wrote it? Debbie, who wrote it? Tolkien. 
Yes, it was Tolkien. I had a whole bit going where I was going to try and get someone to yell out C.S. Lewis. <laughs> that was for you, Tom. Uh, so, but no, it, but it was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, so there is a tie. We can't, I can't do a sermon without mentioning C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis was a friend of J.R. Tolkien. But he had this quote, and actually it's in, it's in The Lord of the Rings, uh, and it, it references one of the main characters. And, and so it, it actually makes for a very nice wall hanging, doesn't it? You can actually, I actually have the, the uh, Black Forest decor. I want to make sure that I give credit to where credit's due. So if you like that, you can go get it if you want, you know. But we take these things, we take these sayings, and we hang them on our walls, and we're like, oh, that's nice, you know. Not all who wander are lost, you know. We romanticize the idea of the wanderer in our culture, right? The vagabond, right? We say, oh, and that, you know, th that's such a, such a romantic idea, just someone who's, they're not tied down, right? But sometimes those who wander are completely and utterly lost, right? And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's where they want to be, you know? But, but sometimes people who wander are lost. And James is, he's got some things to say about that. You know, he's talks, he talks about if, if anyone among you who wander, you know, from the truth, right? And I can't help it. When I think, when I hear wander, I can't think of how Jesus sometimes and often compares his followers to sheep, right? Because sheep, we, we are very much like sheep, right? We just kind of, we just follow our noses, right? We just kind of, we follow the food that's in front of us. We follow whatever's in front of us. And then we look up and we're like, how did I get here, right? Because we've wandered. We're prone to wander, to meander, to stray. And James is talking about those who wander from the truth. And you say, well, what truth could he be talking about here, right? Is it the big T truth? Is it just, is it just, is it salvation? Is it the gospel? Is it, is it, is it that? Like, is it that the truth? Well, yeah, that's, that's truth. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that James is talking about, like, all truth. Like, like everything that he's just written about in his letter is truth, Right? The reality of God's kingdom, about everything that he's written about life matching belief, right? That's truth. He says, watch out for those who wander from the truth. And you say, well, how do I, how do I know if someone's wandering from the truth? Well, there's some signs. There's some symptoms. I'm just going to, I didn't put them in a slide, but I think I've got a handful of them, of people that meander. So the, maybe one of the first signs of a, of a wanderer is that their, their walk doesn't match their talk, right? Which is a major, major theme in the book of James. These are people who are very pious in their language. They're always talking about how people should behave or how things should be, but their lives aren't consistent with what they say. And we have a word for that. We've used it already in this, in this series. Hypocrites, right? So... Another sign of a wanderer is that they are slow, they, they slowly disengage from community. That they're, they have, you have a slow drift in your contact with them, right? And when they do engage, it seems like they're just going through the motions. And I don't know if anyone knows this, I've known plenty, we know, we know these people, right? Sometimes we're those people, but we just sort of disengage. We disengage from community, we disengage from our friends, we just kind of wander, right? The wanderer can go whole days without thinking about God, much less talking to him. They don't have a hunger for God's word. And an absence of God's word in their lives seems to have little or no effect. 
And they can go long stretches of time without praying. They avoid, they avoid intimate, quiet time of talking with and then trying to discern the voice of God. That's a wanderer. A wanderer seems uncomfortable talking about their faith with others, even those who identify as followers of Jesus. It's not just about sharing your faith with a non-believer, but they're just uncomfortable talking about their faith, their life, their heart. Sin doesn't bother the wanderer. They take an almost cavalier attitude towards the things that God tells them to avoid. And they, they, they just, sometimes they can, have a, they can have their own bitterness or resentment towards God. They just continually are articulating a sense of anger towards God over some unanswered prayer, some unmet expectation, some unresolved slight. Now, I'm going to say that we don't know if, if James is saying that these people are Christians or not. He calls them wanderers. Wanderers from the truth. So I, I think it's, it's probably best that we don't. We don't we're not, I'm not judging their heart. I'm just judging, judging what he sees in their lives, right? But the benefits of bringing a wandering person back may help us understand what's at stake, right? At the very end there, he says that, that if you can bring a wanderer back, that you can save their soul from death, right? So... He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about soul death. That's, that's what he's talking about here. So it seems like, you know, he may be saying that these people maybe aren't believers to begin with. It's very possible. The stakes are high here, right? That a multitude of sins can get covered by bringing this person back. That genuine faith brings a full forgiveness of a wanderer's sins, and they're covered. Sins are covered. Death is avoided. The stakes are incredibly high. All right. We got through it all. You all are okay. You're all still here. That's good. <laughs> Put your arms down. All right. So we're going to, I'm just going to summarize now. This is, gonna, this is the part where we kind of bring it all together and we talk about, like, how can, what, what does it mean to us? How can we, like, relate? And how can we talk about this in our families, in our cell groups as we sort of engage with with the word here. So at the very beginning, we talked about patience. So, so the, 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 the thing here is we don't want to lose heart, right? We don't give up. Your, your story is not finished. God's, God sees you. God is not done with you. Is there, is there a situation that demands, that you're in right now, that's demanding great patience of you? And, and what, this is, this is the one, what topics, what things in your life are triggers that tend to cause you to grumble against others, against God? These are things that we should talk about. But don't lose heart. This is not the end. Mean what you say. Our words have power. Our words have meaning. Our words have consequence. So just be clear. Be truthful. Don't be careless with your words. I have trouble with this one, but don't fall in love with the sound of your own voice. Just don't. Weigh your words carefully, you know. So here's some questions. When have you been impacted by someone who didn't follow through on what they committed to do? So someone committed to do something they told you they were going to, maybe they swore to God they would. When have they not followed through on that? And what impact did that have on you and on your relationship with them? So how do you balance your commitments? Do you find yourself overcommitted? Like, is that a problem for you? I know it can be for me. You know, just how do you balance commitments, and how do you know when to say no? That's the hard part, is saying no, I think. 
How do you let your yes be yes and your no be no? Stay connected with God. This is prayer, right? Stay connected with God and stay connected with others. Make, make your whole life a prayer, right? It's a whole sermon series on prayer we, need, we, we could go through. So when is the last time that you sat and listened for God's voice? Have you ever been disappointed by God over unanswered prayers? Does anyone here ever struggle with actually believing that God can do things in your life? That God can bring healing? Have we stopped believing that God can heal? When is the last time that you confessed something to a fellow Christian? And how did that go? All right, last one. Don't give up on the wanderer. This, this one hits me because I, I tend to have I, people, I keep them on a very short leash, right? Like, I have a small circle, and if you're gone, you're gone. Like, if you're in, you're in. If you're not, you're not. And I don't think that's a biblical perspective. There are no lost causes. So I'd say, is there, is there someone, is there someone in your life that you just want to give up on? Is there someone that you've been pursuing? And how could, how could patience and perseverance and prayer be a part of that in your life? How could they aid you in your pursuit? Are you a wanderer? Are you at a place in life where you're kind of meandering around? Is someone pursuing you, and how are you responding to that? All right, I'm going to finish up here. I, actually, I found, this is interesting, I found a, a I follow this guy, Scott, Scott Sauls. He's an author. He's a pastor. And this morning, uh, I was just, you know, as I do nervously before I, I teach, I was on Twitter. And he, he tweeted something that was kind of relevant to this conversation. Um, well, first, he tweeted last night, and he said, Yukon, holy smokes. Nope, nothing. Boy, you guys are rough. But then the next one he said was, he said, listen to this. He said, concerned about concerned about or irritated by someone, talk to them, not about them. Are you concerned about somebody? Are you irritated by somebody? Talk to them, not about them. I was like, well, that seems relevant. And if you can't, you can always write them a letter. Thank you. No. Um, we're going to go ahead and pray. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and pray, and the band is going to come up. All right. <coughs> God, you're pretty amazing. Um, you have just given us everything that we need in this world to relate to you and to one another. If we would just have our eyes open, if we would just have our ears attentive, if we would just have our hearts attuned to just the great gifts of mercy that you've given us, God. I'm thankful for this letter. This is a tough letter to read. It just exposes so much in our hearts. It exposes so much in my own heart. Um, but it also gives me hope. It gives me hope for the wanderer. It gives me hope um, uh, that for all of the stuff that we're dealing with in this world, for the oppression and the, the mistakes that we make, that, uh, that this isn't the end, that we have a God and a Savior who loves us, who's coming back for us. Um, in the meantime, God, if you would just inject us with your grace, that you would help us to pursue your heart, that you would help us to pursue each other's hearts, God, so that, um, God, just so that the world may know.
So we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can all have a seat for just a minute. So um, where'd she go? There we go. <laughs> so uh, I'm Rachel. This is Johanna. And we're going to talk just a little bit about missions. I know we've talked a lot and you've heard a lot the past couple weeks. Uh, but I want to keep that momentum going because we have good things happening. So um, I think we'll start with Pastor Marvin and some updates there if you want to yep. beat that. Okay, so last week um, we asked for prayer for Pastor Marvin's oldest daughter who was coming to the States. So the praise is that she has got to her uncle. They got through um, and released her, so she was able to go and be with him, which is wonderful. Um, we're asking for prayer for, um, there's a lot of immigration to the States, and it's affecting families that are there, um, our families actually. Um, sometimes they'll have a parent leave. Um, sometimes they will send money back, and then sometimes that trickles out over time. So just pray for the kids um, that we're engaging with. Um, sometimes they lose parental involvement because of these things, so let's be praying for them. Um, the good news is, is that we have so much growth in the program because of our support that they need another classroom but they also need more teachers. So we can be praying specifically for more resources for them, for our, the students that are there in these two schools, the upper and lower school. Um, and then the last thing I have on an update for Pastor Marvin is regarding their community, the church community that he's kind of created there. Um, he's really worked hard to try to unify this church, but in the last couple of years, there's been some division. And rather than um, creating a fuss, he's such a humble guy. He just allowed this other church to take over kind of the, the base of operations, if you will, um, and has decided to move to a different location. So they are in the process of building a new church. And so we ask for prayer for that um, and resources for him to be able to build that up from the ground up. So... And kind of piggyback on that is our church will definitely be able to come alongside them and help in some way. We're not sure what that looks like yet. So prayers as to if it's money, if it's time, um, what that looks like for our church. And if you would want to be involved, just something to pray for um, there and ask God how you can be used there. The other update I want to give is on the sour. So we focus a lot on Pastor Marvin and our sister church, which is great. Uh, but we wouldn't do any of this without sours for pastors. So if you haven't heard of them or you haven't looked at their they have a website, they have a Facebook page, they have Instagram now, they have all the things. Um, I encourage you to go look. They are doing amazing work. Um, and if you get a chance to speak with them when they come visit, I encourage you to do it. When you talk about people kind of um, doing what they say and following through and, you know, putting their money where their mouth is, they, they do that. And they really try to be judicious with the funds and things that we send to them and the time that we give to them. Um, they really are, uh, are amazing, and their big mission is empowering pastors and empowering the people of Honduras, because obviously, you know, two or three gringos can't do a whole lot, but you send it out to the pastors there in the community, that's how you're going to reach people. Um, and over the past year, year and a half, if you follow them, they've had uh, some changes in the organization. Um, Trish and Allen are getting a little a little bit older and kind of thinking about retirement. If you know Alan, he goes and he does. 
and if you follow their blog post, uh, he recently talked about how he's a doer and he can't do like he did before. It just doesn't, doesn't work, it doesn't come as easily. And for him to admit that, you have no idea what a big admission that is for him. So prayers for him and Trish as they try to find a way, a new, a new niche in their, um, you know, in, um, in their program, in their community there, and just how they can feel useful and fulfilled and see God's next steps for them. Um, their son, Russell, who was uh, pretty heavily involved, um, was kind of called a different way to do a different ministry, and so he has stepped out of that a little bit, and his two daughters and son-in-law have stepped in. Um, and his one daughter just had their third baby, so uh, they are trying to have a marriage and three kids and be on the mission field, and it's not easy. So prayers, you know, for a marriage, a marriage with three kids in the States is hard enough, but put, like, mission on top of that, and I don't even want to think about what that looks like. So pray for that. Their daughter Kirsten is also very involved. Pray for them. And they also have a um, two new Hondurans. It's a husband and wife uh, who also have two young kids that are taking over the sister sponsorship portion, which I think is great because they can focus more. They can really... Um, get us in touch with Pastor Marvin, kind of get out there and see the community and see the needs and get those back to us so we can pray for them and do that. But again, they um, just started in August. They moved from, I think from San Pedro, I forget, but from one of the bigger cities where uh, Cecia, the wife, was at her you know church forever for like 18 years. They moved away from that church family, away from their families to come and, and do this ministry. Um, so just uh, prayers for them and their family and as they figure out how to fit in. I think that's all the prayer requests. Did you write all those down? I hope you wrote all those down because <laughs> it's a lot. But pick one, pick two, uh, and, and, and pray for them. That uh, James, that was so great talking about prayer there. I was like, wow, this fits in perfectly with what we're going to talk about. So we have praises. We should pray about it. But we have a lot of need there, and we should pray about that too. So I want to pray uh, quickly for this hour from Pastor Marvin. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this group that we get to partner with, for these brothers and sisters that we have in Honduras that over the times I keep going and we keep building those relationships, it's just so amazing to see what you're doing and how you're changing the lives there. Um, I continue to pray for Pastor Marvin that he works on that community, that that community may come together and that division may be healed, and that we know that the church is not a building but a body. Uh, but a building is nice, so if you could, you know, help that way too, that would be great. And then for the Sours, as they have a lot of life changes and they're trying to figure out how to best serve you and fill in those, you know, those spaces, I pray for your guidance and your blessing on their life. Keep them healthy, and I pray that we can work with them for a long time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, last thing, uh, intro to serving here. Two minutes. Run, get your kids, come back. Have a great week.